0: Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters.
1: We are so glad that you found us here at Therapist Uncensored. This is a podcast where we unpack the science of interpersonal relationships and we you know, try to spread it as widely as possible and share it in a way that makes it very practical and useful in day-to-day life. So, welcome. And in that vein, we have... A guest to join us today. He is a psychologist and an associate professor at the University of Texas. His name is Dr. Steve Finn. He's also the president and founder of the Center for Therapeutic Assessment. And while he trains all over the world and he's published many articles on assessment and clinical psychology and therapy in general, today we are going to be delving into the topic of shame and the various manifestations of it, the biology of it, what to do about it, both in kids and in adults. So I know that you're going to learn a lot. He's a really great teacher. It's a wide-ranging conversation. So before we get to that, I know that there's many of you that have requested more information on attachment and relationships. And right now we have three different offerings. The most immediate one, because we just have a few slots left, is for a reading group that we have partnered with this local nonprofit that is really awesome. It's called Austin and Connection. The book that we're going to be reading and studying together is called Attachment Disturbances in Adults by Brown and Elliot, And you'll see much more about that if you go to our website, therapistandcensor.com. It's the first Friday in January, whichever Friday that is. And we just have a few slots. So you can sign up from anywhere. We really encourage you to take a look at that. That leads up to a live conference we have where the the co-author of this book, Attachment Disturbances in Adults, is coming live to Austin, Texas. His name is David Elliott. You can also find that on our website. And if you're regional or if you just want to come in from anywhere, we would love to have you. And that's in the spring in April. And then last, we have a course that we are producing that is free for anybody who wants to learn more about attachment, And that's also on our website. It is probably 95% complete for those of you that are on the waiting list. And if you're not on the waiting list, just join in. Again, there's no obligation. It's totally free. It's just a way f- for us to get the word out about modern attachment theory. Okay. Thanks for joining us. And let's get right to the podcast. Can you tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. I'm a um, a psychologist in private practice in Austin, Texas, and I'm an associate clinical professor To the University of Texas at Austin, and I'm the president of the Therapeutic Assessment Institute that I can tell you about more later if you want. And
0: he's also kind of a legend, by the way, in Austin, Texas. So (laughs) We are so honored to have him here. Not just
1: in Austin, Texas. Yeah, that's true. He travels across the globe doing therapeutic assessment with folks and is very well known for this as a mentor and teacher, and he's my personal mentor for many, many years. So why we decided that we wanted to invite you onto the show is because... You are a master at several things. One is a laser at figuring people out. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but, but also, in the process of case consultation and bringing embarrassing case material, feelings I'm having that I shouldn't be having, or a screw-up that I did that you really don't want anyone to know about, Steve is the person that I've been able to do this with for many, many years. And amazingly, even though I'm very fast. I have plenty of my own internalized shame and I I can really do a big number on myself. Somehow Steve has managed to really teach me in this very deep way how to stay regulated and be able to go into that material and leave his office feeling like I rock. Sweet,
2: thank you.
1: It really is um, a talent and I think everybody has some experience of this very vulnerable feeling and maybe we could start by can you tell us about your own interest in the subject why shame
2: yeah well I, like many things i think it grew out of a personal interest first of all which is some years ago i became aware that i was struggling with a lot of shame and as a gay man and as a trauma survivor i think that was sort of part of my life for a long part and period parcel. of time mm-hmm. yeah The Stephen approach to these kinds of things is to just read everything you can about it. (laughs) So about uh, 25 years ago, I started studying, reading, listening to anything I could get on the topic of shame.
1: As, as a way of sort of mastering. As a way of mastering yeah.
2: and try to understand. I approach things often with my mind, maybe a little less so nowadays. But And there wasn't very much available at that time. I mean, there were some things, thank God. Now, shame is a really hot topic, and I'm really getting talked about and studied, which I'm delighted about. But I just really started reading and then reflecting on myself and noticing my own feelings and talking in my own therapy and then working with clients around this ever-present phenomenon. So now I travel around the world doing trainings not only on therapeutic assessment, but on shame and how to work with clients around shame. And I'm starting to speak to the general public a little bit about shame, which is really exciting.
1: Right, so here's your chance. (laughs) Yes, thank you, I'm
2: (laughs) glad to have the opportunity.
1: Well, that's awesome. Well, where should we start? You know, we're interested always in the science related to feelings and emotion and relationships. What would be a good launching point?
2: Maybe just to talk about what shame is, first of all. So so what's the
0: difference between shame and guilt?
2: That's one of the hardest questions you could have asked, actually.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Way to to go,
0: Anne.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But it's great. Um, So shame is a really, really painful, affective state. Many researchers think it is the most painful emotion that human beings can have. Uh, This
1: this person would agree with that research. (laughs) I hate it. It's my least favorite feeling.
2: Right. And shame is a feeling of not being good enough, of being worthless, of being bad. It's a really intense bodily feeling. When you were in an intense state of shame, we're almost in an altered state. Many people describe a feeling of like being sucked into a vortex. People's eyes will drop. It's what I call kind of a barrier experience where you become cut off from the world around you when you're in an intense state of shame. And you can't hear people. Nobody can get through to you. And you take everything personally and you just feel terrible about yourself. That's a shame state there are people who shame is so embedded in their personality it becomes an enduring aspect of their personality where they just live with a basic story about themselves that they're bad or no good or worthless which they may or may not be aware of so shame exists both like as a trait and then as a state and guilt is very different guilt is the feeling of remorse and that you've done something wrong, but not that you're necessarily bad yourself, but it's a feeling of regret, and uh, it usually leads to wanting to make amends and to do something to reconnect with someone. Guilt, I always say it's a developmental achievement, actually. You have to have experiences of shame that are repaired by a caregiver to be able to experience guilt and many many people really can't feel guilt so they go directly to shame so really uh one of the things i work with clients on a lot of you know i see people who have done bad things well i think uh, of one client i was working with a number of years ago who when he was driving under the influence had actually um Uh, done something that had injured some people very severely and uh, You know he felt horrible about it. I mean, he was just suicidal about it afterwards and uh, We worked hard in therapy uh, to sort of shift his deep shame about that To an appropriate feeling of guilt. I mean he had done something that had hurt people and then from that place where he could feel remorse and um, make amends and we found a way even though he couldn't undo what he had done to uh, have an impact and sort of go forward and feel like he was making a difference in the world so
0: so recognizing that he has done something bad rather than he is bad exactly exactly Mm
2: -hmm. and uh, eventually He uh, became a speaker and went around to high schools talking about the dangers of driving under the influence. And uh, he helped a lot of people. And, you know, every day he still would wake up remembering what he had done, but he found a way to turn it into something and make amends for what he had done. And uh, it helped him live, you know.
1: So one of the, as you describe shame and the collapse of it and the very powerful physiological aspect to it, why do we have it like how what is shame about yeah. why is it a good thing
2: it's a it's a great question and we wouldn't want to get rid of shame even if we could it's a so uh it's very interesting it's not one of the seven basic emotions that we're born with it is it kicks in a little later in life and the classic sort of shame experience starts happening around 18 months of age where there's a child who um, maybe is used to getting really good attunement from a mother and does something. Actually, I have a classic scene. About 10 years ago, I was over at my friend Sarah's house, and she had her little daughter who was 18 months of age, Rachel. And Sarah and I were having a cup of coffee and talking one day. And without realizing, Rachel had climbed under the kitchen table and had gone, and that's where the kitty litter box was. And she had reached in the kitty litter box and taken out a cat turd. And then Sarah and I all of a sudden looked over, and Rachel was holding up the turd and was about to put it in her mouth. (laughs) And Sarah did, I mean, she just reacted automatically and she yelled, Rachel, no, don't do it. You know, and and Rachel was like beaming, like, Look, mom, see what I'm going to (laughs) do. Look what I found. Yeah, look what I found. And, of course, uh, she dropped it immediately and began to cry. And so that's a classic shame conditioning experience. And what that would do is ensure that Rachel was less likely to do that in the future. There are things we don't want people doing in society, and we can't follow them around all the time and make sure that they don't do those things. So there's this internal conditioning thing that can happen. It's classical conditioning where you learn not to do something because your caregiver or the culture or your social group disapproves of it and punishes and rejects you and yells at you about it. And so that becomes uh, less likely that you'll do it. So shame is a necessary social adhesive and a kind of social conditioning that we need in order to live in groups, in order to adapt to living in groups. People who can't experience shame are really impaired socially. We know that if you feel shame and embarrassment, that you're more liked by people. And for example, uh, if you get in trouble and go before a court, if you show signs of shame and remorse, you'll get a lighter sentence, and a jury will be less likely to throw the book at you. Yeah,
1: people can feel that
0: you're human. And- exactly, and they, 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 you, you have care. remorse, and yeah. you feel bad. Mm-hmm. About you it. have that capacity to go mm-hmm. inside empathy. and see the empathy. Yeah,
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there are people who probably genetically had something go on, you know, genetically where they can't feel shame, and those are psychopaths. And there's all kinds of discussions about why we need psychopaths in the gene pool still. I think it's because of war, because if you want to be able to send people into war and not have them come out with PTSD, you need people with that genetic material in them. But they really don't have the capacity to feel shame and uh, remorse, so...
1: So not having enough is a problem. But what about this, you know, I'm much more familiar with uh, with myself, with people close to me, and, and with people that I work with, is having too much shame or getting stuck in shame, falling into states, uh, like you said, states hanging out there too
2: long. Right, right. And so let me go to shame as a trait, so where it becomes sort of an embedded part of your personality, where there's a narrative, which may be conscious or unconscious of I'm basically defective or unworthy or not good enough, which can show up as all kinds of ways, you know, like being really high achieving and perfectionistic can be based on that feeling of not being good enough. So you can get... Dang it! <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite, defense against shame, so... You can get trait shame from two sources. One is a lot of experiences of being punished, rejected, pushed outside the group for all different kinds of things. So. If you're happy and your mother yells at you. I had a client once whose father worked at night and slept during the day. And the kids had to tiptoe around the house. And if you ever showed joy, then uh, she ever showed joy. Her, she and her brother, her mother would yell at them and say, you know, stop, you know, don't do that. You know, how many times have I told you, you know? And then um, as an adult, this woman came to me and said, how come even when good things happen, I can't feel any joy about it? And Joy, when she started to experience it, would become immediately slammed down by this inner shame response. So if your joy has been punished, if your sexuality has been shamed, if expressions of anger have been shamed, if entitlement, positive entitlement has been shamed, all these kinds of things, and not repaired, we should talk about healthy shame later, not repaired afterwards, then you can end up with this pervasive constriction in your personality and this basic belief that you're bad.
1: It even makes me think of when you don't mirror a parent that needs mirroring enough and you just have a, yourself shows. Yes. So not even doing anything classically wrong, but- Popping into three dimensions and existing, yes. can sometimes trigger
2: exactly that.
0: Or differing from the expectation of the parent is that what you mean? Kind of exactly. like I kind of really hope for this kind of personality, and you can't get it in your child, and the child ends up feeling that exactly. feeling not good enough, or like I'm just not hitting the mark. Exactly because they yeah. show
2: something which doesn't you know which gets them rejected or mm-hmm. punished. Right. Then the second place that trait shame can come from, and this can start at birth, really is from emotional neglect. Children who have not have responsive, secure attachments with emotional caregivers who notice them, hold them in mind. So if you have a depressed mother, or I'm saying mother, but any caregiver, so or a dissociated one, or a busy one, or a tired one, who can't look in your eyes and connect with you and show joy and be responsive, etc., that can lead to a deep inner sense of unworthiness. And so, you know, these uh, children who were raised in orphanages where no one held them and picked them up we know from research studies that one of the things they struggle with later is a pervasive deep sense of unworthiness so insecure attachment always has a component of shame with it so and john bowlby our you know big attachment guru said what happens is the child doesn't conclude he's unloved he concludes he's unlovable And that becomes part of the working model, which then, once you have that working model, you pull in information to confirm it, you screen out information that disconfirms it, and it becomes a narrative that drives your life. I
1: love what you're saying. It makes me think of just then that lives, we live that out. Yes. Other words come to mind of worthlessness or, you know, am I worthy? Do I deserve? Yes. Those kind of more fundamental experiences of being human. Like you said, am I lovable at all? Exactly. So that's so powerful and painful, but I imagine familiar to many people that are
2: listening. And you know, I get concerned. This is the place where I think we have to be very careful in our current culture. People are getting better about not just shaming kids for every little thing, but You know, I was traveling recently, and I was in an airport, and I saw a lot of parents with 18-month, two-year-old children, and, you know, God bless parents nowadays. They're so busy and overwhelmed and exhausted, but a lot of the parents were on cell phones Mm -hmm. uh, with their kids sitting there not getting that kind of responsiveness, and I just set myself to watch it, and it made me want to weep because... You know, kids that age, it's exhausting. And our society is structured now that, I mean, I really believe it takes a village to raise a child. And a lot of parents are just stretched so thin with no extra help. And I just don't think they have the presence and the energy to give the kind of attuned responsiveness that kids need. And I think one result is there are going to be a lot of kids who either grow up with this deep sense of shame that impairs them or they develop defenses against that sense of shame, which also can get you into trouble. So, yeah.
0: So it, Steve, in that example, I see a lot of that as well. And what you're saying, and I think parents don't really recognize how... Much the the infant or the toddler are looking to the parent for approval and am I worthy yep. at all small, exactly. minute moments. And when a mother or a father staring at a phone, they have a blank face. Exactly. Their, their face is really unresponsive exactly. and they don't really recognize it, exactly. but their child is looking at them and doing something and saying, do you see me? Yep. And that's sort of the disconnect you're speaking of. Is,
2: exactly. that, is that right? Exactly. And if no, and if your listeners haven't seen it, um, they should go on YouTube and watch this Ed video yeah, the flat face. of the still face yeah, experiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know, they will w- have a, a mother who just for two minutes keeps a still face looking at her child, and the child becomes very, very distressed. And when I do my workshops on shame. I have people do an adult still face, turn to the person next to them. One person talks and the other person keeps a still face for two minutes. It's excruciating. And then I have the person keeping the still face do different things like look depressed, look bored, look tired and you get if you're the person who is looking at the still face you get these very different shame experiences depending on what the other person is manifesting well
1: and it's a real life thing uh, you know i think about the stonewalling and gottman's research and just the being flooded and shutting down as a protective mechanism but the effect of that on partners and children so that you know the other thing that came to my mind is that yeah that kids come to know who they are by the eyes of the parent. And that is how the identity itself gets developed. And if it's really bad, sometimes kids will have to shut out yeah. that messaging, exactly, which then causes other problems later on.
2: Exactly. I know you're interested in interpersonal neurobiology. You know, we're wired... To live in tribes with incredible social responsiveness and these mirror neurons and things. It's, you know, when we were hunting mastodons and tribes, and you needed to be able to look at someone 500 yards away and move your head a little, and they would know which way you were going to head to circle the mastodon. But shame and this hunger for being seen in responsiveness comes out of this interpersonal neurobiology, and it's a fact of our biology.
1: What's so. the relationship between this idea? Idea of having a conscience and shame yeah is that anything that you've
2: yes exactly so shame is really interesting neurochemically too so and, and here I get to talk about healthy shame so back to my story about Sarah and Rachel Sarah screamed at Rachel Rachel drops the turd starts to cry and then Sarah did just what I would expect a lot of parents would do she picked Rachel up put her on her lap and said, Oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I scared you. I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. Just don't don't, don't go in the cat box. That's dirty, whatever. And within about two minutes, Rachel calmed down. What, that's repaired shame. What happens then is Rachel's still less ready to go in the cat box, but she won't end up with this toxic, unhealthy feeling of inwardness That I'm
1: bad for going into the cat box.
2: Exactly. And then here's what's happening. Shame is actually toxic to the developing uh, frontal lobe. Shame is a crisis event where corticosteroids go so high, they begin to kill brain tissue in the frontal lobe. And... If it's repaired, there are other chemical agents that come in that sort of stop that decay, and it actually leads to pruning, helpful pruning, in the nerves and the frontal lobe, which leads to better emotion regulation. You actually have better, cleaner connections between the part of your brain that can think things through and has a moral sense and can regulate emotions than if that hadn't happened. So
0: you're just saying if it's repaired, you mean? If it's repaired. Okay.
2: So you're actually better off if you're shamed and repaired than if you were never shamed. So another way you can really ruin people is the, ruin kids is let them get away with anything. Or, or, be or be so
0: afraid of shame that you're like, can't, you can't express exactly. if, the, the high if, level of disapproval. If it's not repaired,
2: then you end up with this unhealthy shame and less capacity for guilt. So guilt is really healthy shame.
1: Oh that's awesome. I haven't ever heard it put that way. Yeah.
0: Nice. Guilt is healthy shame because it's you you understand that it's repairable and that it, is that what you're saying it's 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 repairable that's not you.
2: You it's still an adaptation to the social group uh-huh. and you still won't do things but it doesn't impair your personality. You don't have to lop off your arms and legs to not do it. You can think through, yes, I can still have my joy, but I'm not going to express it in the middle of the movie theater when the movie's going, you know, because that wouldn't be good. So that so.
1: might go back to that notion of conscience or yes, a sort of moral exactly. behavior.
2: So shame experiences, which are repaired and healthy, lead to better moral sense, better emotion regulation, and uh, conscience.
1: I can't help but think of some of our national conversation right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> where that it's very clear where there's too little, and I don't know about the too much part, but certainly too little, and some of that being called out right now. But,
2: well. I don't know how much we want to get into this, but I think there we can see a lot of defenses against shame going on right now. Public figures who are incredibly sensitive to criticism and go on the these scorched earth attack immediately. And really, when I look at it, I see someone who's very vulnerable to shame, but who can't tolerate the affect state. So
0: so they have to turn it around. Is that what you're saying? Like they they, they have so to evoke it or? in you.
2: Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. have to. Can't feel it. Can't tolerate feeling that.
1: Wow. Well, that's great. So for those that are identifying and really tuned in right now, and it's like, okay, this is really helpful to me. What are some takeaways that we can really think about? First of all, also, I I thought you identified that, you know, because I was thinking about identifying the feeling that it is shame, because that, even that, recognizing that that's what's happening to my body right now, yeah. feels like scaffolding up the neural system a little bit, where now we can begin to reflect and think about what's happening. And I think that you gave a really great description, you or at least you began to about eyes down, yeah, yeah, like what it feels like in your body,
2: actually. And then what's going on neurologically? Shame is a rapid shift from activation of the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's like you're driving your car with a manual translation in forward and all of a sudden you slam it into reverse and there's a collapsed eyes down wanna hide feeling sometimes people come to me and say well I don't think I have any shame and I say well Just think of something you don't want anybody around you to know about that you wouldn't want to tell them and then they go, oh, okay, i got it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's a true story. I was just
0: cleaning out my closet, Stephen pulled out an old worksheet that actually when I attended a conference by you, I have to say 10 years ago and sure enough you had said write an event that you had felt shamed about and I read it and I went oh (laughs) I felt it and literally I I mean I think it really helped to have done that conference because you helped us in that process of kind of dealing with it but work through and and I hadn't even really had a memory of it but man I read that and I felt the just shut drop you felt (laughs) you felt felt your car going to reverse I did (laughs) just by reading it
2: well and here's the takeaway so Because shame gets us to want to hide... Shame is the gift that keeps on giving forever. So we all have things we're ashamed about that we don't want anybody to know, and we don't tell anybody about them, so the shame can continue. People can be ashamed at age 96 of something that happened when they were four years old, because basically they've never told anybody about it. And to heal shame that's happened in the past and hasn't been repaired, what we need to do is to expose the things that we're ashamed about to safe people who listen and hear what we've done, but don't reject us or tell us that we're bad because of it. And so what I'm just constantly encouraging my clients and friends who want to heal shame is, is come out about the things you're ashamed about. And d- don't do it willy nilly. Yeah, with safe yeah, people. With safe people and, t- and test somebody out. Tell them something a little bit shameful and then see how they react. And then maybe you can do a little more. And then you, even if you're we're doing this with friends, you know, your friend's peccadilloes and the things they flinch at. Don't talk to that person about that one, but go to other people. And if you're in therapy, sit in the waiting room of your therapist's office and say, what's the thing I could tell my therapist today that will surely make her think less well of me? Okay, that one's too big. Let me find another one and then go in and try. And if you don't feel better by the end of the session, your therapist has done something terribly wrong.
1: Oh, I love you saying that, like because I get it that shame is a closed system, because it's collapsed and, and physically eyes are down, or that there's an emotional sense of insulation. Yes, and, that and that's, hiding. And hiding, and so that's what's keeping me safe as I'm thinking about this or remembering this event, but by telling, go moving to social, we talk a lot about move social, you know, go social, that by eyes up, I'm seeing you, I'm going to tell you this thing about myself. Now we've opened up the system for a new experience to come in. And that's where healing really happens. So we can't heal shame by like reading about it.
2: You can't. No, nope. <laughs> it's, a, it's a social emotion. And it can only be healed interpersonally. So. And the reasons to heal it are many because shame is so limiting in our personalities. I mean... My client who couldn't feel joy and people who can't feel anger because anytime they expressed any kind of assertiveness, they were slammed down by a narcissistically vulnerable parent or people who can't feel like they deserve something because it's very, I travel around the world now, as you mentioned, and different cultures have different affect states that they shame and that are not tolerated in the culture. And, uh, like can you give in, us examples? Sure. Like in Sweden, you are not supposed to show off at all. You know, in America, here we are training kids at show and tell at age seven to go <laughs> in and say, you know, look at my family's new Mercedes and it's great, you know. <laughs> I mean, in Sweden, you can't do that. You're considered uh, really, it breaks a huge social moral. So, you know, I'll be doing a workshop and I'll say, can I get a volunteer to come up here and role play something with me? Everybody looks at their shoes. Because to come up front would be showing off. But there's advantages to it. You know, uh, you get on the subway, everybody gives up their seat for the older person. You get off the subway, everybody lines up like clockwork on the left side of the escalator to let everybody go by. You know, the social control aspects you can see. But then there's this other part, which is really limiting, you know. And in Japan, you're not supposed to express aggression at all. Yeah, I was just thinking
1: of Japan. And yeah. uh, I forget the word. I'm, there's a word that where that it's this dependency and submission. Am I? Am I? Thank you. Yes. I knew. Yeah. Yes.
2: You're considered yes. spoiled if you express dependency needs. Yes. Really. Yeah. But again, so shame is so limiting. There are all kinds of things we can't do in the world because we have this unhealed toxic shame. And if you can go through this sort of coming out process or healing process, you'll find yourself freer in the world and more alive and more able to accomplish what you want to accomplish and more able to be all you can be.
0: That's just a wonderful way to put it. Do Do you find sometimes that people get afraid, though, to give up what they were ashamed of? You know, and in, in talking about it, there's this uh, almost a resistance to be forgiven, like something bad is going to happen if they're forgiven. It's like if a therapist tries to help them talk through it and let go, it's like, I can't let go of this. Are you kidding? Like the, the fear of repeating it or the fear. Do you ever run into that?
2: Right. Again, we call it resistance, but it's really training. Mm-hmm. It's like if I start showing that thing that you're telling me I should show and which isn't bad, I'm going to get punished. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get rejected. Mm -hmm. So it just means the person hasn't had the extinction experience yet. Mm -hmm. And if it's been punished a lot, I mean, I remember an old therapist of mine long ago, we were working on shame and I just couldn't do this thing I wanted to do. And she said, well, Steve, you know, imagine long ago when you were a kid, you had to hold a chair off the ground with your arm, and you were told if you put that down, you're going to get killed, and your whole family's going to get killed. And now, 25 years later, I'm saying it's okay to put the chair down. I mean, that arm won't go down.
0: That's a great it's trauma, it? it's tra- trauma. Trauma is so trauma. So you need so you need the thought of being able to tell the story. It has to go in stages. I guess is what exactly. you're saying. Keep letting little it go. By Keep, little, little by Little by little.
2: Uh-huh. Right. Years ago, I was running therapy groups for gay men, and sometimes the group would decide that shame was a big problem and they all wanted to work on shame. And so we'd have these group sessions where everybody would think of something that they were ashamed to tell, and then we would take turns in the group and one person would slowly tell something. Then the shame would come, and then we'd have them lift their eyes, look in the eyes of each person in the group. They would ask, are you thinking less well of me now? Are you hating me? Whatever. And people had to answer honestly. I mean, sometimes somebody would say, well, that did kind of affect me, you know. But usually, almost everyone in the group would say, no, I've done something like that or whatever. And the lightness that people would feel afterwards. But it's like walking across hot calls every time. Because the conditioning says, don't do it. I mean, think of the costs in caveman times, if you got excluded from the group.
1: Mm-hmm. That was life-threatening.
2: You would die. Yeah. And we're still wired that way.
1: And there's something really important in that example. And I was thinking of group two. So what an incredible nutrient bath to heal. Exactly. Yeah, there's
2: no, there's no better therapy for healing shame than group. Right.
1: But the key, to I thought, of what you said was that when the person exposed themselves just yes. a little bit, that the listener can join in some way, yes. can find their own version. You didn't say this exactly, but this is what I was imagining. Because if they didn't, even if they were like, well, I'm not judging you, but that's really weird. Or... You know, not have their be able to find something inside themselves that is similar or alike. And I think that if that's true, then I also think about in therapy that the more neutral that we are at times can be really hurtful in an experience of shame. When
2: I'm training therapists, this is one of my major messages. You know, there's nothing more damaging to a client who comes in and says, Oh, well, I want to tell you something today that I've never told anybody. And I really think you're going to think horrible of me. And then they tell you, and the therapist goes, Mm hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Flat face
2: (laughs) within the next five minutes the therapist has to say no I don't think you're terrible what I hear is this and a really a lot of therapists are terrified of self-disclosure and we have to be very careful of it I mean but a very powerful therapeutic intervention can be a therapist who can say very judiciously well I've got some experience with that kind of thing too Yeah,
1: that's where the Me Too comes in, isn't it?
2: That's where the Me Too comes in, yeah. uh,
1: And it is so transformative to get the Me Too, some version of the Me Too, whether it be from a group member or whoever it is that you're sharing. So this is also sort of instruction for if someone is revealing something to you, that this is the best move would be to find a part of yourself that can understand what they're saying. To maybe help them say more and hold, you know, moving into fix it mode. This isn't the time to do that, but to yeah, hear the other compassionately. Mis- the
2: other big mistake that therapists and regular people do is they'll say, "Oh, don't feel ashamed about that." Oh, that's you not-
1: shouldn't feel bad. Yeah, that's fine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> move, moving too quickly. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Or just and, getting
1: right. this dismissive, right? Of getting mm-hmm. them out of the what they're saying that they feel exactly
0: because then they don't really feel like you're with them. They no. feel like you're, that you're too uncomfortable and you need to move past it.
2: Well, then, that's well, right. I. I mean, I once had uh, a client I was working with who had a lot of body shame and his group therapist had come up with a brilliant idea, excuse me, but of uh, everybody in the group to look at the guy and tell them something that they found attractive about him. So he would say, I feel really ugly, blah, blah, blah. And they'd say, well, I think you have beautiful eyes. and I think you have lovely hair. And I think you know, whatever. And then he didn't feel better afterwards. And then when I was interviewing him about it, he said, well, then I still felt ugly. But then I felt stupid for feeling ugly. Uh,
1: (laughs) Shame about shame.
2: Shame about shame. Exactly. And then what would have helped is for each person to say, well, you feel ugly. You know, people tell me I'm smart, but I feel stupid, right. or I hate my nose, or everybody shared the shame. And
1: that's the joining.
2: That's the joining.
1: It's not head patting. It's not trying to get somebody to feel better, but it's really joining. And it's a simple technique, but it's actually really, really hard to do, but the most powerful.
0: Rather than to a vice give, I think it's so easy to try to jump in because you feel discomfort and you want to make them feel better when they're feeling bad about something.
1: Yeah, because otherwise you're going to think, I'm going to think if you say, oh, but you know your ankles look great or something you know that I'm just going to feel not seen like you don't get it without necessarily the joining versus if you're able to say something I'm like I'm so self
0: conscious I yes. totally get what you're feeling because I feel so self conscious yeah, about I'm so embarrassed that, about my twisted ear <laughs> like, right. that experience of feel, I guess it's part of the the experience of not being alone in the world and feeling like someone else is, can really, is really shame really, is very isolating that's, that's and great. healing mm-hmm. is to not feel
2: alone not and uh, I like the metaphor of Anna Gazarian who develops this System-centered therapy had this metaphor of getting in the boat and rowing with someone by joining with them, or standing on the shore and going, "You have a good ride," you know, waving from (laughs) the shore. That looks terrible over there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So sorry, so sorry, you're feeling bad about your body. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's
1: right. Yeah, as I'm doing my nails or something over here, you know. (laughs) Oh, these are so so important. Really, really specific ex- techniques cuz i for sure wanted to get to that the piece that we just talked about about therapists their neutrality sometimes being hurtful and then there's gradations of what can do and and i'm with you steve i think a little bit of self disclosure at the right time with Judicious. the right person can be magic.
2: Yeah, you don't... I mean, the therapist shouldn't pull the attention back to himself. So right. Like, oh, right. oh, sister, you talking about you. Let me tell you about me, you know. What, <laughs> Do you none. think that
1: was bad. <laughs> <laughs> right, right.
2: And don't self-disclose things that are going to uh, mess with your client's esteem for you, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, puncture their, their their picture of you. Right,
2: and yeah. don't self-disclose things you're currently working on your shame about i mean get a little farther ahead of the client <laughs> so. just about half inch is that okay that's good Half inch does. <laughs>
0: and you're even saying i love what you're saying too you don't even have to expose details you no. just have to expose connection to those deep deep feelings and then we're talking about it in therapy if think about it a lot with couples yeah you know i see maybe one, teaching couples to do teaching it. couples to do because you see one person having a great deal of shame about something they've done and the other person almost feeling like, it's silly, you shouldn't feel that way. Exactly. That's just, that's really, come on, that's a little ridiculous. And because they kind of can see, because sometimes shame can seem disconnected from the outside person's perspective.
2: Exactly. And again, when you go back to the interpersonal neurobiology, that pushes the person outside the relationship. I'm different from you. Where shame healing is about emphasizing some similarity, even though you've done that, you're part of our relationship, part of our group, we're not pushing you away. We accept you. We can make room for that.
1: So, and just to add to that, another language of that is like popping left, some you know, going left brain, yeah. versus having this right brain to right brain. Roughly, this is not ex- technically right, but this is how that it's referenced. Like a right brain, that's what you're talking about, Anne, is helping lead the couple into a into a I Thou experience or we're together on this, with this issue, which is more of a felt sense of, you know, I'm here with you and you're there and we're together. And I think that some of the techniques that we've talked about is this popping left, which is I'm gonna fix it, what can I do? Oh, that's not so bad. The Excel right. spreadsheet trying to manage the other person's affect. Mm-hmm. Right, so that, no. right, that right to right is the beauty of, fi- of finding someone. You can, and with, when you get a really good right resonance, it doesn't even matter so much what you say because it's people can feel you with them.
0: Definitely.
2: And the reverse
1: mm-hmm. of that is also true. If you say all the right things, but you're not actually there, they can feel that too,
2: typically. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah, no, I agree.
0: You know, it also crosses my mind. What about when you're with couples and one person's feeling shame for something they've done to the other one? An affair, so Pearl talks on an affair or something where shame, the other partner is wanting the shame. Any suggestions about how couples deal with that?
2: Well, again, there's where I think the shame-guilt distinction is really important, which is to help someone move out of a place of I'm a bad person to I did a really bad thing and how can I make amends? And then, yeah, the person who wants the person in the shame pit to realize that that's actually not gonna be helpful to them or the relationship because then the person really won't be able to reconnect and make amends. So, you know, not that we can't all want to destroy somebody who's hurt us, but to move past a place of... And what, what I see more... Com- here Here's a very interesting phenomenon. There are very good people who do terrible things sometimes because they're avoiding shame. And then afterwards, they can't take responsibility for it because they don't have the capacity for guilt. They fall immediately in the shame pit. So they, they will deny they did something rather than say, I did that and I take responsibility and I apologize, they'll say, well, that, I didn't do that, or that, that's only because you did that, or whatever. That person has a shame problem, but they're defending against the shame. And if you can help them tolerate the shame and move to guilt, then they can make amends in a relationship. And it looks like they're psychopathic or don't care what they're doing, but they just have a huge shame problem. So, it makes that
0: makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Wow, that's it's really, really insightful.
1: So we had mentioned, and you had said specifically about repair and the importance of repair. Uh, should we say a little bit about more about what that looks like, what you're looking for in particular, what is most useful when there has been a rupture and there's a need of a repair?
2: Yeah. Let's actually start with parents and kids. So okay, great. if you have a young child and you've done like my friend Sarah and yelled at them and they're screaming and, you, you, you know, the, uh, with young children, the very first thing is to um, initiate some kind of physical con- – first of all, get yourself calmed down and realize what you've done and then initiate some kind of physical contact and then like my friend Sarah did it was so beautiful name what's happened like oh i scared you or i hurt your feelings or you're feeling bad or and then start apologizing and backing off and saying, I'm sorry, I, I got scared myself, you know, I, I was worried because that. And again, even with a small child, they can just hear from your tone of voice, really, and help the child calm down.
0: I love that because you're really saying name what their experience is first rather than immediately defending yourself. You know, I had to yell at you because you were doing Right, I really love that That little step is such an essential one, isn't it? To kind of say, you're scared. You're feeling and really connecting to the child first before you explain away.
1: But you're right. You have to have the muscle to be able to sort of bear that you just screwed up.
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. And so if they're mad
1: at you for that, like, you just yelled at me. You know what I mean? And you can't say, I did not. (laughs) Um, you (laughs) You deserved it. Or, right, that you have to be like, you are right. I... Right, I did. I lost yell it for a minute. Yeah. yeah,
2: exactly. Right. Oh, this leads me want to make another point. I think we I see another common parent, a common parenting mistake these days, which is parents who are working so hard to not instill shame that they have this straight jacket on and they're always in a sickly sweet oh, sort oh, of ah. like oh honey don't that's not good don't put your hand in the kitty litter but you know um, that also is really not good for a child so <clears throat> it's better to lose it occasionally and make a repair than to be some kind of inauthentic you know the, the child can hear the tension in your voice while you're not expressing exactly. and that doesn't <laughs> well, so then,
1: what
0: this is not like the other. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs>
1: right. Well, but also then their own aggressive feelings will feel a lot more weird and scary. Exactly. If they don't see it modeled in a healthy way.
2: Exactly. So you know, be yourself. I got yourself. irritated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to shame your kids, but then just learn how to repair yeah. afterwards. So.
1: And I also hear kind of tell the story. You know what I mean? Like make it make sense. Help it make sense to them. You know, this is what happened. I was tired or I, it, that scared me. I thought that you were going to put the, you know, whatever that it is, so that they have an idea of this is why this happened it didn't just come out of the blue right and then was there more for either kids or for adults around repair
2: well then you know later on i think if we realize that we've kind of lost it and shamed our partner or shamed our teen or shamed an adult friend or something to as soon as we become aware of that to come back around and say you know I've been thinking about that thing I said to you the other day, and I'm feeling remorse about it, you know. So again, you have to be able to work yourself from shame to guilt, and then acknowledge it, talk about what it must have been like for the other person.
1: I want to re- repeat that real fast. You have to be able to work yourself from shame to guilt. That is, sounds so
0: practical and useful and so, concrete so- and helpful. And would that be sort of, again, shame from... From shame of oh my god I feel horrible I'm so bad to oh my god I feel so bad I did that is that part of what you're talking about the journey from shame to guilt is to realize that it's not part of who you are but it's
2: something you did exactly and that we're human so and it, and this is so thank you for underlining this because all this work I'm talking about doing about getting your skeletons out of the closet and exposing them whatever that's going to make you more able to do this later in relationships the more shame you clean up. The more emotional regulation and flexibility and ability to move from shame to guilt you get in general. So then you'll find this becomes much easier to do.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense because you're not so afraid of it because you don't because you describe the shame state and how horrible it feels in your body. Why wouldn't we as humans be incredibly motivated to avoid that? So if you if you were able to let yourself experience it and know you can move through it, yes. then it's not as scary to go ahead and be able to experience it and do repair and, exactly. and your shame
2: pit goes from being infinitely deep to being 100 feet deep to being 20 feet deep to being five foot deep to being one foot deep and you can get out of it easier oh, that so. makes so much sense
0: <laughs> i don't know if this is completely off mark and if it is we don't have to keep it in but um one of the thoughts i have about the level i guess of what we're experiencing in some of our administration you we talked about the difficulty feeling shame and guilt and the freedom of being around somebody that doesn't feel shame when you do feel a lot of shame. And so the idea of narcissism sort of freeing others up because they don't experience shame. So there's this idea that you, you, you watch somebody go, Oh yeah, no big deal. I've grabbed them there. I've done that. I've like, and it's something that you feel shamed about being around uh, somebody who doesn't can momentarily free you up, but in an unhealthy way. I'm wondering. That's the thought I've been having about the current political climate and the backing behind some of it for a while. Some of the behaviors that got spoken about, whether it was racial or sexual, and to see somebody that you're supposed, you know, to have some sense of respect for, go, ah, no big deal. It's like I don't have to feel so bad then. And so the attraction to the narcissist, I wonder sometimes, is the relationship between that and the freedom of our own shame that we haven't allowed ourselves to really deal with.
2: That's a very interesting thought I had not really pondered. But yeah, I mean, and there was absence is the appropriate guilt. Right, right. right. That's what's absent. Right. That's
0: absolutely, they don't have appropriate guilt. And, guilt. and if I feel incredible shame about something in the past, and I'm around somebody who doesn't feel it, it's like, oh my God, I can skip right over that. I can be free. I can almost be proud of it. Yeah. And, and And instead of working through it, I get almost healthily released from it, I could just—they're right, admit- modeling
2: shamelessness, which is a defense against shame. Sometimes, Absol- so, so right. So we don't want to go from shame to shamelessness. We want to go from shame to guilt. So
0: that's a really, really important step. Right. Yeah,
2: yeah. Because I mean, what you're talking about can be helpful. Can be helpful in certain contexts. I have a funny story. You know, um, I lecture in Italy a lot now, and I've learned Italian, but I'm not—I'm not perfect at it by any means. So one day I give a lecture and I, and I just have decided, you know, I'm just, I can only do what I can do. So I'll give a talk and I know I'm making grammatical mistakes in every sentence, but people can understand me. So I just talk in Italian I can reach a lot more people there when I'm in Italy. And one of my colleagues came up to me afterwards and said, you know, this is so helpful Watching you speak Italian and just barrel through, although you know you're making lots of mistakes because we've been afraid to speak English because we make lots of mistakes. And you know what? I realize you can really do it now. <laughs> so, but there's a place where shamelessness is helpful and freeing for other right. people. But I haven't done something bad.
0: Right. It's just freeing some of the embarrassment up and to watch somebody feel comfortable with it exactly. and connect with them. I could see that. There's just a freeing of it in a healthy way.
2: But if I showed shamelessness about things that I should have guilt about, that could model to other people a way to defend against shame and never experience guilt.
1: It almost seems, yeah, reinforcing of the defense and adding to and bolstering up the defense against ever moving to a place of guilt or
0: self-reflection or humility. Right. I think that's part of how the Me Too uh, was able to really, really become, because they're going, wait, wait, why why are we talking about these activities in a shameless way? And right. it, it was anonymous and like kind of, and now all of a sudden being co- people confronted more directly about their specific actions. It seems like we're kind of backing up and, and having, thankfully, less freedom to just throw something off in sort of a narcissistic, glib way and go, wait, 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 there are some things we really do need to, as individuals in a culture, deal with in our shame and our behavior and do repair.
2: Exactly. And again, it's very interesting cross-culturally to not only look across cultures where people have a lot of shame, but look at the places where they seem to have no shame.
0: Oh, interesting. So, and
2: again, in American culture, grandiosity and sort of showing off and whatever is praised. And sometimes I wonder if it's just gone too far, you yeah, know? Um, I think
0: you're, right. and gone too far and maybe part of it going through periods of time where we really got marked to not shame children, almost to a place where, no, let's just celebrate them, but not, you know, be so fearful. Them. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I I can understand that completely as a parent going through periods of time. Wait a minute, was I too hard? Am I still being too shaming and being overcorrective in that?
2: Right, right. And so, for example, in Japan, shame is such a potent part of the culture, I think they're too accepting of it. So Japan has one of the higher suicide rates in the world, and most of the suicides are because of shame, not because of depression, very different than the u.s and There's a Buddhist monk now in Japan, Itetsu Nomoto. He actually was in Austin a couple of years ago, and he's working in Japan to decrease suicide rates by getting Japanese culture to realize how shaming it is. so and, uh, it's, it's sort of accepted to shame people. Mm-hmm. Um, so.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, just as quick, it makes me also think, you know, certainly the Tiger Mom stuff and the pushing with related to grades and also sports yeah. and the, the institutional shaming of coaches and that being just – Just part of it, and at times uh, can be inspiring. You know, I mean, clearly it works in some ways, but then there's this something that could be toxic if somebody's internalizing it as that's who they are.
2: Right, right. Mm -hmm. Versus that they
1: should have caught that pass. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. keep trying. You know, you can do better.
2: That reminds me of one other thing I want to say to parents, too. So, There's an important individual difference variable that moderates shame, which is we now know that there's a genetic variable of emotional sensitivity in children. Some children are just extremely emotionally reactive to their environment. There's some research that's been done in Sweden on this, and they call these children orchid children. So in a warm, accepting, uh, nurturant environment, these kids are stars. You know, they grow up to be beautiful flowers. But in a shaming, harsh, rejecting environment, they're greatly, greatly impaired. And uh, there are kids who have this emotional makeup, really, from birth. And there are other kids, they're kind of like dandelion children. You could throw them in the middle of a parking lot and they grow. You know, they're just not as reactive to this environment. So... I think most parents, especially if you've had more than one kid, you can tell sort of how emotionally sensitive your kid is, and the highly sensitive kids don't need harsh parenting. You can look cross-eyed at them, and it works to control behavior. And those are the kids especially to make sure you do good repairs if you lose it, and to um, really try to use softer, more nurturing parents. You still need to correct them, of course, but just a plea for the emotionally sensitive kid and for parents to start paying attention for that.
1: I love the orchid and the dandelion. (laughs) Yeah, that's immediately understandable. Um, And kind of what you're saying is to be able to moderate uh, in order to get them in that middle range, yeah. sort of healthy shame, that an uh, orchid child would need very little to feel the the healthy shame, exactly. Um, <laughs> where you would have more room to be a little messier as exactly. a dandelion,
2: exactly. With uh, an orchid child, be especially careful about making repairs, so yeah,
0: I could also think that maybe the, the dandelion child who isn't sort of organically as sensitive might be. Inclined, a parent might be inclined to use a lot of shame, kind of like, why don't you feel that? Almost in a shaming way. You'd have to be probably also, I would imagine, a little careful if somebody is struggling with shame to try to help them without just using, I can't believe, to shame them for not feeling shame.
2: Right, right. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I, I think they need more containment, stronger well, that's containment. True. So. Yeah. You know, I have horses, and I have one horse where I have to be really strong, and um, that helps him just feel great in the world, and I have another horse where I have to be very, very soft, and that's all he needs, and if I'm stronger than that, then it, it doesn't go well, so, yeah.
1: Well, I love this uh, conversation, and I think that there's, our audience is going to really, really love it, and they may want to follow up. How would people reach you?
2: So through my work with therapeutic assessment, let me say a word about that, actually. Yeah, that's actually, yeah, what I was meaning to. Great. So my colleagues and I have developed a method where we use psychological testing to help people identify uh, their shame help them sort of bring it out to the open and become aware of it and begin to know how to heal it and it's a brief intervention and uh, we have a website com, and we do trainings for psychologists and other therapists who want to learn how to use psychological tests to help people this way and um uh, there's a list of certified practitioners on the website who are now around the world. And it's a brief intervention. So it's, uh, you know, two to eight sessions. And we do it with adults, and we do it with children and families, and we do it with teens and families, and we do it with couples who are having struggles. And if... Uh, what the research has shown that uh, if you've had therapy and haven't felt that it's helped you as much or you're just wanting a new way to sort of get through things and get deeper and identify sort of like your core issues and work on them, that this can be an effective way. And uh, my contact information is on the website. and uh, We have lists of our trainings. There's a bibliography of articles and so that's a good place to go
1: and let me just say somebody who has used therapeutic access assessment with many 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 people that i work with it is, I, you know, it's IV therapy and it's not just shame. You mentioned shame. Right. But it's, it's a, it's a full profile and it looks at a lot of different dimensions and I don't know that it, we've ever done an assessment where that we didn't walk out with a person
0: really glad that they did.
2: Oh, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I'm glad that's true. <clears throat>
0: and for couples. They're really wonderful. My experience in having two couples who are really, really struggling both do an assessment and really learn what is, uh, what is blocking them in their relationship. It's just amazing.
2: Yeah, and, You know, on the topic of shame, I think a lot of couples get stuck because they're inadvertently shaming each other for things that they learn not to accept in their own personality. And so they're trying to make it go away in the other person. And you can just get in these very negative cycles. So, yeah.
1: So that's great. So thank you very much. uh,
2: Thank you. This was really fun. Great questions.
1: And thank you listeners for supporting us. We continue to grow. We are so thrilled uh, to have you and we encourage you to share this show. Somebody may have come to mind as we were talking that you might want to forward the episode to. And you can also, we've got some activities coming up that we're very excited about. We've got a conference April 7th with David Elliott. You can find that on our website and it's a live conference in person. And before that, we're going to do a reading group. And so no matter where you are, you can join that. It's an online group where we're going to read his book, Attachment Disturbances and Adults, Treatment and Comprehensive Repair. So you can find that at our website, therapistuncensored.com. And you can look
0: in our show notes for many of the references that That's Dr. Right. Finn our made today. Our references
1: are always packed with great
0: stuff. So thank you for joining us. Thanks, Steve. It was really, really enjoyable. Thank you, and Sue. Therapist Uncensored is Anne Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.